Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley, and today I'm delighted to welcome Scott Davison to the podcast. Scott is our first Kiwi guest, which I'm obviously very pleased about as a fellow New Zealand national. I first met Scott when I was his compliance officer at an energy company, Agreco, and he was a marvellous support to the compliance function, taking it seriously and facilitating a very fruitful business trip of mine to Kuwait to conduct compliance training. And this is where Scott was based at the time uh, as the country head. Since then, Scott has found himself responsible for the compliance function as part of his commercial director uh, duties in a new company. And he has been a vocal supporter of women subject matter experts in compliance and made introductions to grow the network of women in compliance. Scott, welcome. Please tell us a little bit more about your background and how you found yourself on the other side of the fence building a compliance program. Um. Firstly, thank you, uh, Mary. Um, compliance on my background. So I started off, as Mary said, working um, in the Middle East. It's probably predominantly where I first got um, a touch of a need for compliance, ethics and compliance, um, working for Agreco, um, working in Kuwait, a fantastic country, um, amazing culture, um, but also the businesses operate at a certain pace and it became pretty quickly apparent that there were certain things that needed to be fixed um, and it needed a uh, it needed to be dissected and done in, in bits and in a certain sequence. Um, and the first part was the people. So that's really where I started looking. Um, the people element was what first got me interested in compliance because without looking after them, then the rest of the requirements from a layman's perspective were irrelevant. So does that answer the, that first question, Mary? Absolutely, it does. And then um, how about nowadays? How, how are you more involved in compliance in your current roles and responsibilities? Um, it's the same sort of thing. Um, the, now it is about compliance with um, an EU, uh, a UK law. Um, it's on with a UK law, so um, in line with the Company Directors Act, um, Companies Act 2006. So that's where the compliance comes from now. So that's more a legislative requirement. Um, and in the UK, it's a lot more mature than it is in the Middle East. Uh, the Middle mm-hmm. East is heading in the direction for sure, and it's got a lot of um, local GCC nationals who are highly skilled and trained, but also a lot of Western expats who are at the top of their profession helping build these companies within the Middle East to meet a Western standard, such as ISO and and others. Mm -hmm. Great. And you're now working in the UK, um, of course, after that stint in the Middle East. How has your risk profile changed with the different geographies? Um, The risk, yeah. So the the United Kingdom, um, because it's more mature, the the risk profile is lower. You have less um, open or loose ends. We're in the, the Middle East, and I even found it with a corporate such as Agreco, with Hertz, um, who I worked for subsequently, that they have, they work at such, as I said before, such a pace that quite often it's a sales-focused agenda. So they're always looking at how to gain revenue. There's a lot of things then are left at the wayside, such as contract um, compliance, 
technical compliance, um, things that will open you up to contractual disputes, late payments, then those late payments then put you in breach of local laws around um, creditworthiness, especially in the Middle East. Businesses can be fined or even um, leaders be, can be imprisoned uh, for uh, falling into a defaulter situation. So it's all, and they're all like a domino effect. So you have to address the front, the, the people awareness, so making your team aware of what their duties and responsibilities are, get them to own their duties and responsibilities, but make sure that what they're expected to do is in line what they need to do to make sure the company remains wherever they are working within the law. And no matter how fast the sales requirement is, don't lose focus of what you need to do to do things right. And that's the, I think, the big thing. There's a lot of opportunity in the Middle East to skip things because you want to get the money because that's mm. the nature of the culture. Where in the United Kingdom, it is in the reverse. You'll see a lot of here design, compliance, regulatory sign-off, going through all of the agencies that you need, such as environmental, et cetera, in an engineering situation. And then you get to the, now let's talk about finance. Um, so it's, it's here, for me, that's where the risk exposure comes from. Uh, differently in the two places. Yeah. And um, is there anything specific that compliance officers in Kuwait should look out for as a common compliance risk? Um, I, it's compliance officers. Um, I, w- I would say just understanding the team that you've got because if, you, if you've if you got a good, you've got visibility into your business and you hold, and you have a um, the ability to be able to look into such as finance and understand that if you drill into it, then it's going to be true and it's going to be transparent, such as uh, the probity register. So in the Middle East, there is um, there has been on, on lots of occasions um, cases where people have tried to ga- give gifts and all sorts of things, which is against any corporate um, guidance nowadays, but it's still considered to be a social norm within these countries. Um, a lot of companies are pushing back, but you can still take some of these small gifts as long as you record them or you have a process of saying, no, I'm sorry, we can't record that gift, but we're going to record the fact you offered it to us. So Mm -hmm. then you can say, hey, look, guys, we've had X amount of money put to our way or we've had these things put to us. What that does is you are creating an umbrella that protects your team from people saying, hey, I think your team are being taking some money. No, hang on. Mm -hmm. We've got transparency and that visibility. It gives the team, especially some of them that come from um, or expats from the other side of the world, it gives them that protection that their livelihoods are going to be safeguarded by you as a business leader. Mm. And and, and that's just one small aspect. And as soon as you invest in giving them security and knowing that you're protecting them, they will give you then more of their trust, more of their respect, and they will do more for you and it becomes cyclic, and you end up becoming a partnership, and they drive the business, not just you, mm-hmm. um, as the figurehead at the top. So I, did, I hope that covers that point. Yeah, it's a really lovely one, because for me, that leads into servant leadership as well. And, and I know that you and I have had in a previous discussion, sort of the doing away of hierarchy and being seen as um, peers and equals between team leaders and those that uh, they have the, the role of supervising. So I really like that you you weave that thread into it as as well. I, I, we we have a um, 
I'll give just one very short case, mm. uh, case study. Is sure. In Kuwait, we, we had a, um, a number of expatriate employees, around 36, from a number of countries, seven countries speaking 29 languages. They were just the most amazing group of human beings I've ever had the chance to work for, with. However, it wasn't always that way. When I first started, there was no trust, there was no respect, there was no understanding of who we were. The first thing we did is we created an, an environment where we were the same. So we had a canteen, um, we uh, put our own stamp on the canteen, we made it bigger, and we decided to eat at one table. So we had one table where you had to sit with all these other nationalities, with all of these other skill groups, with all these other age demographics, and you had to eat food, a simple thing that we do every day. We're all away from our families, we're all in a foreign environment. And what it did is it built an understanding that, hey, we're all exactly the same. I, I might have a job as country manager or you might have the job as mm-hmm. service admin. Or to this day, my, my T-boy or the office boy that I had in, in um, Kuwait, Rasika Verakuti from Sri Lanka, he was my equal. He sat and ate food beside me. We laughed, we joked, we talked, and we spoke as in an egalitarian fashion. And from that foundation, when I walked out of that kitchen and I said, listen, guys, I need you to do X, Y, and Z for me today, can you do it? They'd go, yeah, sure we can. And they would really, and they would go out and go the extra mile. And it, it became a focal point for us about showing that we were the same. And as soon as you remove that hierarchical point of view, you get a buy-in through the ethics. Um, so we had guys that were reporting health and safety near misses. Mm-hmm. Beforehand, they were too scared. They were too scared to do it because they thought it was blame culture. I removed mm-hmm. the blame and said, I don't want to remove, I don't want uh, the blame culture to be the reason why you don't report them. I want you to report them because you want to go home fit and well and safe and you want your colleagues to do the same because mm-hmm. that's all I want to see. And then they got it and we had the highest number of reported near misses mm-hmm. and people were saying, well, you, you've got an unsafe environment. I said, no, I think what you've actually got is you've got an environment where they feel safe enough and they feel appreciated that they can report what is actually happening everywhere else. So, yeah. Yeah. Feeling, yep. being the same, I think it was essential. Yeah, I think that's right. And what you have identified, I think, was also discovered in um, psychological safety studies where people were accused of, you know, if there were lots of reports of speaking up, um, that that meant that um, you know, cultures of psychological safety uh, had had more harm or, or more risk in them when, in actual fact, that's not the case. They just had better ability for people to feel um, that their management was approachable in terms of being able to speak up. And so I think that's a great example of, you know, the literal breaking of the bread together at the table made you approachable as a manager. So beyond the the respect um, side that, that you spoke of and the reciprocal relationship, you also showed that as a manager, um, you had an open door. And in fact, people didn't even have to go to your door to find you uh, because you were sitting right there with them uh, at lunch. So that's a a wonderful case study. And thank you for sharing it. And, you know, I I don't want to criticize the the places I've worked in as a foreigner because like you, I've had some really lovely experiences. But it is really funny, you know, in, in places where there are high numbers of, of foreign workers that you do tend to gravitate towards um, the lunch tables where, you know, it's familiar people, people from your home country or, or very similar 
And so when you mentioned that, it brought back, you know, a lot of images of, of that kind of grouping at the lunch table. And everyone's very friendly towards each other in the different groups, but the intermingling isn't always there. So I love that you were able to overcome that and, um, and show value in the, the mixing and mingling. Yeah. Well, it, it, was, it was something that um, we took as a, a real um, badge of honour over the time I was there, that mm-hmm. the, the team, team wanted to do a sport. So um, I provided funding for a basketball team. Um, we were the worst basketball team in Kuwait, by the way. <laughs> um, we, we have got we have got the record of losing every single match we played in three years. Um, but but without and this is this is a testament to the amazing individuals that played. We had um, uh, a team full of um, people from the Philippines. We had an Egyptian player. We had several players from India. Um, we we had all of these people playing in this team, but they had just one thing: they just wanted to enjoy themselves week after mm. week. Um, I don't know what they, how they would have celebrated had they would have actually won. The <laughs> um, but they had one rule, and they said that I couldn't play. Oh. And they said, yeah, they said, we, we've come here. And I, I appreciated that because I was terrible anyway. I was awful at basketball. Yeah. Um, and I, not that I could have made them any worse, but they, they, mm-hmm. that it was their opportunity to go out there. And I provided the platform, and I sat back and watched them every week. And they went from strength to strength, and they got mm-hmm. tighter and tighter. And I had people from traditional cultures that were like two opposite ends of a magnet. In the end, they were bonding and they were talking. And we, in my last month, we ran a sports day. Um, we played football, we played darts, we had a barbecue. And we had the most amazing, just random, spontaneous conversations and joke. And I've got the photographs to this day. Um, mm. And that was the evolution of when I came in. They were siloed to their, to their culture, to their language within their culture. And they, they had a just, um, uh, what would you say, a um, they, the dislike for each other's silo. They, and as soon as you broke those down, the power mm. of them as a unit, they were the most, so some of their skill sets were incredible. I had guys there who had 25 years in power generation. And as soon as I unleashed that ability as a team, wow, they did some amazing work, really did. Mm. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And so I'm keen to hear, Scott, how has your thought process towards business changed since you've put on the compliance hat? Um, right, I, I got told this a wee while ago. Um, I've, got, I, I, I've become a risk manager and, and it dawned on me that before you do anything operationally or commercially, you have to assess and evaluate the risk. And that's at any cycle of any revenue generation. Mm-hmm. And whether it's it's pre-designed concept, a uh, concept, anything, there is a risk factor you must take into it. Now, risk to revenue, risk to business, um, over leveraging, um, over uh, extending your people too much, uh, damaging your current customer base. But that risk analysis is the thing that um, is where I sit now. I, I've still got the commercial head, I've still got the operational, but that risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ability to be able to sit back and say, right, what have I actually got in front of me? Mm-hmm. What, how viable is this proposition? Is this going to be, could this produce revenue for us? If it does produce revenue, is it good revenue? Is it ethically uh, clean revenue? For example, are we trading and uh, exporting to the right uh, countries? Are we mm-hmm. not breaking FCPA guidance? Um, mm-hmm. All of these things, which you need to keep be aware of, but quite often people don't see it because they go, well, I'm going to make a million pounds. 
Fantastic. You make a million pounds. You could be at risk of losing five times it in punitive damages. Mm-hmm. Um, so that risk aspect now has, has really helped me. And I did uh, the Summer Academy IARCA in Austria in 2017. Mm-hmm. And that was surrounded by compliance uh, professionals from the legal um, profession from all over the world. Um, and I was the only layman there. And mm-hmm. it really highlighted to me that there the, the general managers and the, the business owners who are not legally um, trained mm-hmm. need to have a very good awareness of what's happening because if you don't understand about compliance, it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse to say, well, I didn't know. So mm-hmm. under F- FCPA, if you don't keep um, good documents and records, it's not mm-hmm. an excuse to say, well, I didn't know about that. Mm-hmm. You need to know. You need to understand what field you're playing on and what rules those that field's governed by. And if you don't, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're going to put yourself in harm's way and, and you are going to get punished and your business will suffer. And for me, Mary, this goes to the heart of it. Mm-hmm. Every decision I make around risk is about the people that either report mm-hmm. to me or rely on me to do my duty. Because mm-hmm. if, I let, if I let myself down by not doing my job right, I could cost them their jobs um, and, their, and their livelihoods, and that's not right. Mm-hmm. That was real music to my ears. Um, Scott, I know that you've always been supportive um, ever since you and I have known each other. But to hear you speaking with passion um, and, and really having your own rationale as to why compliance is important to you, uh, that made me really happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, sorry. It's, I, I think it can, it's... People say it's complex. So people have written so many books. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's books out there on, on Compliance 101. You can do SCC e-courses. Mm-hmm. All of these. What you have to have is a common sense approach where you're prepared to listen to what's happening, what's the noise, what's the voice of experience, what's the regulatory framework that you're working within. And what are the lessons? So if you go into the news and say, okay, um, risks to manufacturing, and you press mm-hmm. enter in Google, Mm. If you put your geography in, it'll tell you what the risks are. Mm-hmm. If you don't, if you don't study, and that took me two seconds to think of that. Mm-hmm. If you don't read those pages, which might take you a day, you could spend two years in litigation, yeah. um, defending your business, or losing your investors or your shareholders' money, which could be their livelihoods. It could be, it could be a critical infrastructure you've failed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all of those things. I know they're all ripples, um, and they go up, they're endless. But you've just got to understand what playing field you're on and what the rules are and you and ignorance is never that defense to say oh it's i didn't know Mm -hmm. learn it go find it become Mm -hmm. a quasi-legal person so that you can challenge the mary shirley's of this world and say hey (laughs) yeah i don't understand this tell me and then you you get it explained and you go away and you go hey now i understand it i the principle behind iarca and this goes to why you talk about risk in kuwait and in the middle east um there has been instances where there has been um, corruption. It, it, it happens mm-hmm. in every society, and I'm not saying yep. it's, it's systemic to the Middle East, mm-hmm. but there have been instances in a lot of the GCC countries where um, corruption has been a mechanism to people to try and get orders, to mm-hmm. um, to make sales, mm-hmm. and to protect my team against that and the, and the teams that I work with. I took on the training at IARCA, mm-hmm. and I really learned that the anti-bribery and corruption uh, part of the uh, ethics and compliance is such a great pillar to build into your business to say we're ethically compliant as far as anti-bribery corruption because as soon as people that are in the grey area or 
mm-hmm. um, on the wrong side of right, when they're the wrong side of right, they won't want to come near you. Mm-hmm. So you've already you're proactively deflecting these people away from your business already. Mm-hmm. Like the like the bear of a ship, you're pushing them away, and then you get to the customers that you want, which are customers that believe in your core values and principles, customers mm-hmm. that believe in doing the right thing, and you're going to then spend less time paying for solicitors to defend you, upsetting customers and losing money through mm-hmm. damages, etc. So it's it's I don't know, um, it's all sequential as far as mm-hmm. I see it, but yeah, it's only from that experience that I found that out. And you you spoke a moment ago about um, you know it's it's basically as simple as um, putting stuff into a search engine with keywords and you can find out your risks pretty quickly. Um, my next question for you is: as a business person tasked with building a compliance program, how did you go about getting up to speed? I think you, you um, I don't think you did mention um, the IARCA course and finding that really useful. Um, how else did you learn about compliance from the point of view of the practitioner as opposed to the audience of the practitioner? Um, I, so I did IARCA. I also self-funded yep. um, an ISO lead auditor training back in 2015. Awesome. Um, because I admired the auditors that came. I was very curious at what they were doing. Um, mm-hmm. I was watching uh, them work and I was thinking, what, how do they do that? Mm-hmm. But then when I... When I did the lead auditor, I understood that you measure a business against the standards and you ask clinical questions about and open questions to elicit the answers. Now, you're not there to apportion blame. What you do there to is evaluate where the business is. And mm-hmm. then that led, led me on to the next part. So I had the, the auditing function. I had the um, this quasi-regulatory um, approach, which was through um, IARCA. In mm-hmm. the middle, I got... I got stuck into QMS. So QMS, so the quality management system of any organization is just rife for, because if it's not correctly um, developed and designed mm-hmm. for the business or it's not updated continually, it can lead to loose ends that can place you at risk. So you might be supplying, for example, in some countries you supply mechanical equipment with an operator. If you don't have someone keeping an idea on, okay, have we got insurance for these operators to work on other people's sites? A small thing that you, which is only a lead in, if that person, and you don't have the insurance and that person has an accident, in these countries, you are legally responsible for any damage they cause. If you're working on a refinery, that risk element now mm-hmm. is mil- millions of dollars mm-hmm. and, it, and, it will be, and it will be recovered. Mm-hmm. And so just by missing out in the QMS policy, that you've got a structured tracking mechanism for the insurance for all of your labor force employees so that every time a contract goes out, are we ticking a box that says we've got insurance? Mm-hmm. If you don't have those functions and those those compliance points ticked off, the risk element grows. It, it is a geometric growth. And then all of a sudden you have got a huge opportunity by a poorly designed QMS system to mm-hmm. be at major, major risk. Yeah. And we don't often talk about QMS on the podcast, so I'm glad you you gave it some airtime here. I think it's essential. The industries I worked in um, had the the QMS because we had a lot of health and safety, a lot of service Mm -hmm. operations, a lot of uh, contract management. So all of those were interlinked to finance. Yeah. And when I first started, they were quite divorced. Mm -hmm. And one of the organizations, we managed to pull them all together so they were from an inquiry to cash and they and you, they were traceable so that they were like 
they were basically what is happening now in the UK over the last five or six years, order matching. And it gave you the resilience of knowing that what you're doing at the customer end was backed up all the way from the point you first got the inquiry, every touch is recorded, every every part of the customer's um, requirements being ticked off so that they're getting exactly what they need, when they need it, it'll perform that duty. And if it doesn't, you've got the insurances and the indemnity there to protect your business to say, hey, this is an act of, of God, if you like, or a um, an act that has happened that we can't control, but we've got a good, solid, resilient contract that's mutually friendly um, that protects us both. And so many mm-hmm. people don't look at that. They go, oh, we've got terms and conditions. Have you actually read your terms and conditions? Because <laughs> if you – no, seriously, I've had that from business leaders as high as boards for whole mm-hmm. continents, and they go, of course I have. I've got five lawyers. I said, no, I asked you, have you read your terms and conditions? And they mm-hmm. sit down and say, oh, it's so boring. It's two pages. Okay, so do you want to sit and read two pages of terms and conditions or do you want to read a 20-page document that explains that you've just had a fatality on a site because mm-hmm. your health and safety failed and mm-hmm. now you're liable? That, I'd much rather read two pages than 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, excellent. Um, and so now I'm going to ask you, Scott, to let us in on a little secret. What is something that the business wishes we as compliance professionals would know, but that they don't tell us? What the compliance professionals... Um, what they what compliance professionals know? Um, but, um, what, um, what, what, what does the business wish that we, we would know, either about them or the way in which they operate? Um, I, th- I, think, I think there needs to be a greater connection between, um, I think it needs to be a more interactive aspect with compliance officers and compliance professionals with mm-hmm. businesses on the ground. Mm-hmm. They, need to be, they need to be there and, and talking to, the, the team as a whole in any business, whether it's on a finance um, stockbroker's floor, whether it's um, in a health setting or the manufacturing setting, being to show, look, compliance is not a, it's not, explain that it is there as a part of a fabric that is there to govern the business and not, mm. not to apportion um, liability or blame or fault. It is there to build a framework where the business can operate um, well, it can. It's in line with its strategy and its goals, and that the people that you're speaking to are part of that goal path or that goal journey, and so that um, you know, very simple, a simple one, um, diversity and inclusion. So mm-hmm. any business that doesn't have a DNI program nowadays um, is making a mistake. Mm-hmm. You, you can have it, yeah, but not just have a program that you say, "Hey, sit down and do three hours a year and tick a box." No, mm-hmm. invest in that program and get the compliance officers in there. Get the DNI specialists in there. Sit down with your sleeves rolled up, and as the leaders, create a forum where you can develop these people so they want to speak, and so that you have people that are male, female, of any gender, any orientation, every race, creed, so they can discuss with each other how they can build a business, and then mm-hmm. they become the stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the compliance officers have a lot of value to give because you can add credibility. So, hey, look, we've brought in these DNI professionals. This is the purpose of it. Um, we've had some instances or the industry has a, these um, sad statistics about how we are not got enough inclusion, diversity. We want to change that and get the team to tell you how you can do that. And 
I've seen some great examples. Um, Cummins Middle East um, had a fabulous leader in the Middle East, one of the board directors, and he was such a, a great advocate for um, the woman uh, woman and work program. Um, and he would really tr- he really tried to break down those barriers and those stereotypes in the region, um, and getting in as many females into every position. So we had the right people doing the right jobs, um, but getting people recognised for what they do. And there were so many fa- fantastic female colleagues at Cummins. And that was all because of the leadership getting involved. Mm. Mm. That's wonderful. And it, it leads me on to my next question for you, uh, which is that you've been very outspoken, and I, I do mean that in a positive way, about giving kudos to women in compliance how can men in business roles and as peers in compliance best support their female colleagues? Um, I'm probably going to get shot down by every other male on the planet now, so I'm going to fall out with about 50% of the population of uh, planet Earth. Um, I, I, would, I would say stop thinking that you're always right. Mm. Stop thinking because you're a, a middle-aged man in your, you know, your late 40s, early 50s, um, that you are the, you're driving this. No, you're just part of... The business, you're just part of the organization and give people credence and credibility, uh, the credit for what mm-hmm. they deliver. And yep. um, there are so many um, ladies that I met overseas who were just such fantastic advocates for um, making change. And they broke down those stereotypes. They were on, we had um, female technicians, we had mm-hmm. uh, the first engineering overhaul um, lady from Nigeria. Um, mm-hmm. She was absolutely brilliant. Yet people for many years had pigeonholed and she worked in the stores and it took mm-hmm. the leader I was alluding to before to take her out of there, give her a training course of six months and she'd already done mechanics. Mm-hmm. And by giving her a voice, all of a sudden we had other female apprentices from the GCC national community mm-hmm. that wanted to come and join the organisation, which that then, that was a snowball effect of positive mm-hmm. to positive mm-hmm. where we had the naturalisation, uh, sorry, the naturalisation, the um the nationalisation, which is mm-hmm. part of the program to get more GCC nationals, we had more females approaching for engineering apprenticeships, for engineering um, internships, and that is just incredible. That is exactly where you want to be because mm-hmm. then you're getting the opportunity of not just picking from one gender bucket where you might have some of the right candidates, you're now picking from both sides of the fence and you have obviously got everyone who's the best in that bucket. And mm-hmm. and that's that's where I think men in business need to step back and say, look, you've got to stop thinking that you're always right. Give everyone a voice, appreciate everyone's skills and look at it from this perspective. Don't pick someone based on their gender. Don't pick someone based on another criteria. Pick the right person for the right job and give everyone a chance to achieve it. And, you know, there's some incredible people out there, really are. Yeah, that was a, that was a great answer, Scott. And, um, Honestly, I think the only people that would criticise you for the, for that are the ones who always think that they're always right, right? Because I think it's a, a very reasonable thing to say, whether to, to man or woman. <laughs> Let everyone yeah, have a chance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just give them a chance. Um, you know, I I, um, I sat with Rasika Virakudi in, in Kuwait, and he was um, he was the office um, boy, if you like, if that's the term, which was awful in them days. Um, so Can I sit with him? Scott, just to um, share for those who perhaps haven't worked in this type of culture, um, if I understand you correctly, this is the staff member um, that's assigned to taking orders for, for tea. Is that the, the same as what that, you had? Yep. 
Yep, that was his job when he when yep. I first arrived in Kuwait. Um, I absolutely detested it. It was um, yeah. I, I made him a deal in the end that if he made a cup of tea, he had to make one for himself and sit with me and have it. That's um, lovely. Yeah, and, and he did, and it took six months for him to get around to having that first cup of tea. And he mm. sat down tentatively and had that first cup of tea. But then when he had it, we had the greatest conversation. And I found out he was a hydrologist. And he had been in Sri Lanka drilling for uh, water bores for the United Nations. Oh, and he was And he was highly skilled as a hydrologist. Yes. Yes. And, and I, um, I spoke with him and he returned to uh, Sri Lanka. Um, and he's now happily married, living in his house. And he's got a job back in hydrology. Um, yeah. And I was awesome. just... Underneath that cover of realizing that he he had so much to offer, he was an engineer. Yeah. He was he was employed to make cups of tea. That was just so wrong. Um, and yeah, he became a very dear friend of mine. Um, we we still keep in contact with him to this day um, and speak to him on a regular basis. Um, but that was all about identifying that he wasn't a part of a silo. He was just a, he was my equal. He was um, just a fabulous person, and about treating someone that way, you 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 gain so you get something for free out of that interaction. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful story, and my story is not as as good as yours, but I, um, I think I had a very similar response when um, uh, I was in Hong Kong, and we had a um, a lovely German intern, uh, and she said to me, Mary, would you like me to make you a cup of tea? And I was completely taken aback. And I said, no, can, can I make you one? I mean, it's it's just, it's a, it's a very different, right? Just different expectations, different perspectives. But I think the, the New Zealand yeah. uh, response seems to be universally the same. Yeah. Oh, I, I had, um, when I first arrived in the Middle East, I had every, um the uh, people in my first employment with uh, Greco would call me sir or boss or whatever. Mm. I said, no, my, name, my name's Scott. Mm. I said, just call me Scott. And mm. for 12 months, most of the people called me sir, boss, and, and it, I kept correcting them. And then slowly but surely, the tide changed. Mm. And now I've got people from countries, and they said, this goes against everything that we're told that is what is acceptable. And I said, yeah, but this is a two-way thing. This is mm. not just finding something acceptable. It's about me as well. Mm. So I feel very uncomfortable about you placing me on a pedestal just because I come from somewhere. I said, that's completely wrong. Mm. I said, I, I should be judged on my character and my behavior. And that earns me the respect. It's not about where I come from or how much money I have or the cut or the, the cut of my cloth. That That's not the, the way it should be. Mm. And, um, and it really did. It fostered such a, a different, a different way of thinking. Um, and I learned from it. And from that, then you started to back to our, the reason for the, the conversation today is then you get into understanding about the risk and about the compliance steps that you need mm-hmm. to build to make those people part of an organisation that is resilient, that's um, transparent, and mm-hmm. that is got is got credibility. Um, mm-hmm. And if you if you do that, then your customer offering is sustainable. You can sustain mm-hmm. it and grow, and you can grow that business will will follow. Mm-hmm. And Scott, this has been such a, a lovely discussion and, and I'm heading right to the end now. So my very last question for you is, has your view of compliance officers changed now that you are a member of the compliance function? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I, I used to think that, that um, compliance was just part of just an audit function. It was just part of mm-hmm. um, a, a, a governance um tool that a business had that um, was not necessary. It was just there to slow things up. 
when I actually got involved in it, I found out that it is the, it is the mechanism that makes you operate more efficiently um, mm-hmm. and more safely. Um, mm-hmm. And it is absolutely critical that compliance is, you've got to understand it, you've got to apply it. And then every time something doesn't quite work, go back and find out why. Mm-hmm. Go and ask professionals. Ask your, ask the leaders that are leading you, do you understand this? And if you get a, a pause or you get a quizzical face or they say, don't worry about it, then really that's when you need to be standing up saying, uh, hang on, I think we do. Can we seek a third opinion on this? Because you know this, this affects us. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, um, it absolutely has it, has it changed, um, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I really I, I enjoy compliance. Um, mm-hmm. My friends and family think I'm crazy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but when you go into businesses and you can show that you've got a value system mm-hmm. that is set in a certain position and that you want to apply that to the duties that you are going to take on, then that really does give you credibility right from day one. Mm. That's fantastic. I'm so glad to hear it. And I'm really glad that compliance brought us together. I'm so proud to know you as such a a strong tone from the top kind of a leader. And I'm sure that all of our listeners will have heard about some of your philosophies towards leadership and uh, how successful they have made you uh, in the, the roles that you've left behind and will continue to, to achieve success in, in the roles that you have in front of you. So thank you so much for sharing those philosophies with us. And I hope that some of the listeners get some key takeaways and perspectives from the other side of the fence. Thank you so much, Scott. All right. Thank you for the opportunity, Mary. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.